You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, hats off, hats off to Carl because we had this amazing discussion that I'll never forget just uh, 20 minutes ago. And there's times when you go to bed with um, thoughts that you know are brave and uh, you wake up with those same thoughts. But acting on that bravery to lead everyone forward is um, it's a responsibility that's quite, um, it's quite refreshing. And I love building surfboards and I'll always build my own boards and I love riding any surfboard, but when it becomes a role of building something for someone else, that's a radical thing. And um, that really makes me excited. And the reason why these guys are so stoked and, and the age that they are still so involved is because when you see somebody else ride something that you designed, that's a stoke. And they didn't tell me that when I started. <laughs> well, no one was around to ask. <laughs> but. You know, writing something you make is really cool, but seeing something, somebody else write something that you've made, I'm telling you, <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> so that's where I come from, and um, design and innovation is uh, something that you act on and then continue to walk through, but uh, it's an honor to be here, and thank you so much for having me part of the show, and um, alongside these great minds, I respect um, everybody's path immensely. All these pods behind every one of these boards is a, a story and a family and a support system and uh, it's just this is life we happen to be fascinated by similar things so we have shared lives in terms of um, surfboards in the water but um, we walk through life together and building things for other people and sharing thoughts is <coughs> I love that part of it it's probably the best part for me That's the voice of surfboard shaper and designer Donald Brink. Donald was, of course, the subject of a previous episode of Surf Splendor, episode 70, if you'd like to check that out and learn more about Donald. But in this piece, he was referencing a conversation that he had with Carl Ekstrom. He and Carl, along with Ryan Birch and Tom Morey, the inventor of the boogie board, are all featured in an exhibit at the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center in San Clemente, California. The exhibit is called What Box? Thinking Outside the Lines of Traditional Surfboard Design. The exhibit runs through April 2015. The Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, also known as Shack, is also our home studio for Surf Splendor. You've heard us reference Shack multiple times. We record our surf news episodes at Shack. They are doing the foremost job of documenting surfing's history. With an expansive collection of photos, magazines, films, tons of imagery and stories, and most impressive is their collection of surfboards. From some of the first known surfboards to Kelly Slater and Mick Fanning's title winning boards. Uh, it's a really, really impressive operation. 
surfingheritage.org is their website, but if you live anywhere in Southern California, they're open to the public. They host lots of cool events and programs like the one that we're actually featuring on today's show. So before we hear from Tom Mori and Carl Ekstrom, let's hear more about Shaq from Shaq's executive director, Paul Strout. Oh yeah, and Paul actually had a supporting role in a film called The Endless Summer, in case you're not familiar with Paul and his impressive legacy. Sure, it's a repository of surfboards and photo artifacts that, and other pieces of surf history that has been collected, donated, and shared. And our, our purpose is to curate the artifacts and the history to share the legacy that's been created. Mm-hmm. Um, there are nuances that any surfer knows. You know, it's all, a, it's all so personal. Yeah. Um, it's not a team sport. Right. And I think this is what intrigues people to come back and, and, and go back out again and again and again. And there, there's small incremental um, things that happen that put a smile on your face and, and cause you to think um, more about what you're doing and, mm-hmm. and how you integrate uh, a connection and, and uh, with the ocean. Um, and, and how you're able to uh, lift your spirit and also your pleasure. And so I think all of those things form a foundation uh, to surfing that uh, resonate on an individual level. And you share some of the stoke and the experience with other surfers. Um, you talk about how great the waves were uh, on a certain day. And uh, that's all part of it, but it really, in my own opinion, it boils down to a personal experience. I like that. I like that you said that, and I never really thought about that, but you're absolutely right. That's what is unique about that museum is it's like these personal touchstones with people who came before. Yeah. And so when you walk into Serving Heritage, the way we have it curated right now, we have a timeline, and it gives you a perspective of what's happened over it's roughly uh, 100 to 125 year history mm-hmm. of modern surfing. Um, Duke was identified as, and he really was the uh, the leader of the Renaissance. You know, because prior to um, Duke Hanamoku uh, surfing in Waikiki, um, originally surfing was um, reserved only for those with uh, royal blood mm-hmm. in the Hawaiian lineage. So. Uh, if you're a commoner, there's a feudal system, a king, and then everybody served the king and his objectives. And um, if you were part of the royal family, then you had the opportunity to experience, if you so choose, chose that, um, to pursue that. Um, but no one else, all, no commoners were allowed to uh, serve. And so a lot of things are not clearly understood about that background. Um, Hawaii... And Hawaiians was um, came together from a very very long voyages from Polynesia, you know, yeah. uh, to what were represented as the Hawaiian Islands. Um, but uh, they, they traveled in ocean craft, and the ocean craft, those canoes were they were really made to ride the swells. And so surfing originated in the craft of carrying people 
and migrating across the ocean to a destination, which mm. ultimately led to Hawaii. So they had that uh, architecture, if you will, built into the surf crafts, designed so that it would sustain their travel and the elements in the ocean that you confront anybody who sails. Sure. You know? And so that kind of went down to a, a personal craft rather than a craft carrying people, uh, more than one. Mm -hmm. And so it evolved. It was crude originally, you know, uh, and, uh, but basically shaped with a, a bottom curve, uh, especially more pronounced in the front end of the uh, surfboard. Um, but, but still small in relationship to the, the hydrodynamic design uh, features that represent, are represented in a modern surfboard. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, the, the board itself back then has, has completely evolved into what you see now. Right. You know, and they've actually gone back down to the PIPO board right. you know, that in terms of size. And, and all those nuances allow you to do things that you could do with a small pipo board that you couldn't do when the boards got bigger. Right. And so it's all part of that uh, whole experience of personal uh, personal involvement in the ocean. And so, mm -hmm. you know, surfing is just it's simply defined as um, riding and experiencing travel on a wave uh, while standing or or lying down. And so how you how you elaborate or how, whatever direction you go is all personal. Sure. And so to me, that, that, that's our objective, is to bring uh, the community of like-minded people right. who enjoy the ocean. That's where they're like-minded, but share that uh, experience per, on a personal level and bring them together to experience all the different dimensions of what uh, surfing represents. And that's what we're trying to do. How was Shack, the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, started? Who started it, and how long has it been around? It's been a vision of Dick Metz. He was basically your original surfboard hoarder. Uh, he collected these boards when, when he was on Maui, running um, uh, the Hobie um, shops there. Um, people, he he told me he saw people with a board on their car. It was you know damaged and. Uh, hadn't been needed repair and he says well what are you doing with that board and he says oh I'm taking it to the thumb he says why he says well I'm just getting rid of it and plus I got to get you know make space for we got we have an enlarging family and and uh, I just don't have room for it he says well why take it to the dump can would you leave it with me would you give it to me and he says of course you can have it so he started and you know that's an exaggeration, but that's basically yeah. what he told me. You yeah, know? And I can so, see that happening. Yeah, so he's accumulated these boards over a, a long period of time, you know, over 65, 70 years, and, and he saved them. And so uh, he had them in his shop, you know, and he'd right. bring them out and, you know, and showcase them in different times. But that was the basis of the collection. Mm -hmm. It started there, and it's been added to. Sure. You know? And we've... Have received donations from a lot of people who believe in the in what we're doing. What's your favorite board in the collection? That's a good question. <laughs> um, you know, I have quite a few, okay. and, and for different reasons. But one of the boards that really stands out in my mind was a Matt Kemlin board that he built. Um, Matt was a um, became a, a, a in his professional career an architect, but that that the, his perspective of lines and curves, uh, which is all part of architecture, uh, 
you can see it in his board that he built when he went with Tom Zahn and Joe Quigg to Hawaii in the early 50s, I think it was 1950-51. And so he made a, a Malibu board because that's where he surfed. With, mm -hmm. That's where a lot of people surfed uh, back then at that time in California. Right. And um, Malibu has a really a, a, a near perfect wave. It's always been recognized. You know, the two two most perfect waves traditionally, you know, over surfing's past have been uh, recognized as Rincon and Malibu. You know, right. for obvious reasons. But uh, coming to Hawaii or planning to go to Hawaii and bringing a surfboard designed to ride particularly Makaha at that time, um, in bigger surf. Uh, he designed a board uh, that is so unique uh, to me, it still stands out. Um, and so one of the things, it's standing right in our show, showroom, uh, and as you, it's, I think it's a 10-foot um, balsa board that's been fiberglassed, and, but you can feel the, the rail line on both edges, and it comes down to a, a pintail and gosh it just uh, it just feels so good to the touch and mm. that's another thing about uh, surfboards if you I watch the people that come in to look and because it's a museum you know you're advised you're informed not to touch the you know the, the boards that are on the rack but the real surfers will go up and I watch them and they don't manhandle the board but they gracefully run their hands along the edge of a surfboard, yeah. particularly the, the tail end of the board, because mm -hmm. that's where all the control resides, mm -hmm. you know, in the surfboard. And so it's, um, that would have to be one of my favorites. I think I've seen that board. I've seen a number of, there's a few Kivlin boards, right? Yes, we have more than one. Yeah. Um, so how does the museum exist uh, financially in terms of funding? That's a good question. Um, it's a nonprofit, 5013C. Uh, California Corporation, and most nonprofits survive through donations mm -hmm. and contributions, financial as well, and so does Surfing Heritage. And we're trying to build a community of members. Uh, we have different, you know, we have uh, 100 founders that were um, close friends of Dick Metz, and they were uh, asked by Dick if they would share his dream to uh, collect a, and develop a repository for surfboards and other surf-related items uh, and, and create a museum for all people to enjoy. So uh, he brought them all together. They all agreed to put up a certain amount of money individually, and that was the corpus of uh, funds that was used to um, inaugurate the museum and have all of the corporate documents and paperwork done so that they could actually move forward and uh, realize that dream. And currently, um, I know that there's membership as well. People can sign up, like listeners who want to support, you know, rather than giving a one-time donation, they can become members, right? Yes, uh -huh. we have uh, individual memberships uh, available. It's, uh, if you're a senior citizen, it's $25 a year. Yeah. If you, as an individual, it's $50 a year. What are the benefits to being a member? The benefits are that you are uh, you can have free entry into the museum at any time, and also you can participate uh, in our exhibits and our events that we have. Uh, as a member, you come in without having to pay a, an entry fee. Awesome. And so, and so, but bigger than that, I'm trying to document those who are members. They usually have a connection. They either 
come from a surfing background or they are interested in surfing and they're coming to you know uh, participate in the events that we have and to learn more about it and so in either case we want to share uh, what we have through a vast amount of experience from not only the collectors themselves but all the shapers mm -hmm. you know uh, the, the craft of shaping a surfboard has been refined to just an uh, such a higher level than where it was originally. Yeah. And so all of those nuances, like particularly right now we have an exhibit called What Box, which is an extension of uh, outside the box where mm -hmm. you think differently about, um, in this case, surf craft design. And these four individuals, uh, Tom Mori, uh, Carl Ekstrom, Ryan Birch, and Donnie Brink, they all represent uh, different design criteria uh, tech, uh, techniques in terms of uh, shaping and the fine nuances of shaping, um, they, all, they all have a different perspective of what the surfboard should look like, but they don't stay in one spot. Right. You know, it's constantly evolving and they're experimenting. And so to hear them uh, talk about their work, their own work and craft uh, in terms of shaping and building boards, it, 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 it it opens up a whole vista of thought that, you know, a lot of people uh, haven't even gone to, mm -hmm. you know. And as a shaper, taking all this information in and learning about their individual careers and their perspectives about design, I think it just opens a whole new vista of, of uh, experience yeah. and opportunity for a surfer who takes it seriously. Right. You know? I think like you see all the design improvements that have been made over the years and it's allowed people to surf different types of waves like Chopu mm -hmm. that weren't able to be surfed on certain surf crafts in the past. And the surfers have become better and more advanced. And to see them develop those skills like Ryan Birch and then go back and ride that chunk of styrofoam that he's ridden to fame. Um, where it has none of the design implements, none of the hydrodynamic modern principles. It's a very crude thing. He developed his skills by writing these modern things, but with that skill set now going back and writing a very simplistic planing craft, mm -hmm. it allows you to understand the benefits of that planing craft in a whole new light. Exactly. You, it's really amazing. Yeah. It's like nobody's ever written that planing craft before like that because we never developed the skills. We developed the skills with all this modern design, but then deconstructed all of that to the simplest form and something new is born, Right, which is amazing. It is. I mean, in Hawaii, everybody, and they still do, especially the local people, you start by swimming. Mm -hmm. You learn to be comfortable in the ocean, and then you learn the rhythm of the ocean, you know, as, it, as you get washed up as a young child on the beach by a wave. Yeah. And then as the wave withdraws and recedes, you know, you're there without water, and then another one hits you in the face, and then you find that you can go back with the ocean. Right. And so, you know, they become familiar. And so the first step in once you've gained the ability to float and to move in the water and, you know, and control your movement uh, would be to try to, you know, an exaggerated view of getting washed on the beach by a, a breaking wave on the beach is to go out and, and ride it for a longer distance. Mm -hmm. And so you start the body surf. 
and then you you know you we never had fins you know and then you you borrow a fin and we always shared you take a you go out with the body surfing you take somebody else with you and you each take one of the fins sure you know and so that gives you a familiarity with the ocean and then you migrate to uh, uh, a, 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 a board, usually a pipe board, but it was re really a piece of plywood, sure. really, and that that has a super flat tabletop planing surface, mm -hmm. and so you can do certain things, but you've got to lift the board, the front end of the board, out of the water, and so all those little things are become part of your psyche, and and you understand, you know, what works and what doesn't work, and so it's an evolution in yeah. the process, and. And a lot of what you mentioned about Ryan going back and riding a piece of foam kind of takes you back to that level. It does. You know, and then all of a sudden you realize what you can do, and it, it is amazing, you yeah. know, if, especially with skill mm -hmm. that you have of riding a board with fins, you know, and hard edges in the, in the tail and how fast you can go, and then take all of the fins away and ride something without really design uh, any design component, right? And, and then what you can get away with. So, the talent and the you know the coordination and, uh, of your body, and your understanding of waves, you know, and w when to catch the wave, and yeah. can can be elevated by going through that experiment by deconstructing. And, yeah, so that's what we're trying to share, you know, on that level, but also on the very elementary levels yeah. about. Uh, surfboards and, and through photographs and studying them and what people have been able to accomplish while writing craft on a wave. How long does the exhibit run? It runs for another month and a half, I believe, and, and so we welcome everybody to come by and take a look at it. It'll blow your mind. It's very unconventional design mm -hmm. watercraft. Yeah. And what you can see, you know, if you watch the ASP, the WSL, and the professional surfers is what they're riding now. It's completely different from what sure. boards were ridden in the 60s, you know, right. 50 years ago. And um, uh, it's, it's, it's so fascinating. Final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last surfboard that you personally rode? The last surfboard? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like a variety of boards, but I prefer to ride a, a longboard. Yeah. Uh, to me, it... it it, you have to be more thoughtful yeah. with what you do on the board, and to be graceful, it's it's uh, it, it takes a lot of uh, energy and thought. And so I just enjoy the, the the ability to walk up and down the board instead of remaining in one place. Yeah, you know, like a short board. But yeah. I don't I don't I don't look um, um, on short board uh, in, in a different way. I mean that that's a whole sure. experience in and of itself. But um, what was the exact board? Uh, it's one that Roger shaped me, uh, Roger Hines, and um, it's a it's a it's a ten foot board. Okay. Uh, it's a it's a nose rider, but the back end is um, extremely sharp on the on the bottom rails and uh, for about thirty inches. And I found that uh, it, it totally releases, and so even though the tail is wide by being about 16, 16 and a half inches, uh, one foot up from the tail. Well, the fin will hold you in, but you're able to have no drag when you make a turn. Okay. And so you, you, it's effortless. You can let the board do most of the work, and you don't have to put so much energy into making the turn and then having the board not lose any speed. And so that and then getting up on the tip of the, of the front end of the board has always been a, a pleasurable experience for me. 
Much of the audio for this episode I poached during an opening night for this exhibit. Maury, Ekstrom, Ryan Birch, and Donald Brink all sat on a panel discussing their work. They shared stories and fielded questions from the audience. And additionally, I'll weave in some audio from a conversation that I had with Carl Ekstrom, just one-on-one. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But I'd like to open this portion of the show with Tom Morey explaining some of his early influences. The very first boogie board that he ever created is on display in this exhibit at Shack, and that is worth the trip alone for this. So, here's Tom. Thank you, Barry, and again, uh, I underscore uh, what a marvelous job you've done of putting this thing together. This is uh, really a great-looking show. Um... You know, things come at us in no particular order. You never know what you're going to get from who you're hanging around with. And I I had the good fortune of uh, working at Douglas Aircraft uh, back in the 50s. And I'm at lunch one day, and there's a couple of old guys that were uh, talking about a C-something or other, a great big airplane that was a seaplane, and they couldn't get it to ground. They couldn't get it off the water. It had steps but they couldn't get it to leave the water until somebody figured out to vent the exhaust from the engines to the back side of the step and they relieved that back pressure. That was just a passing comment, but it settled in me. And uh, as a result, I've built uh, maybe 20 different boards, some of which are here, that I called air lubricated. And uh, it got me thinking on, uh, and you guys, I don't know who's built what, but you younger guys have built a couple of some really neat-looking boards with those steps, those little thin steps. Been insp- inspired by the pollinator here. This this gentleman is a um, is a connector of this this man uh, puts together different materials, which which I do a lot of. But he also takes has a lot of joy from putting together different people and getting getting them to learn about each other and uh, advance things, whatever the, whatever the situation is. Tom's talking about his good friend and longtime design collaborator, Carl Ekstrom. We'll hear from Carl in just a moment, but firstly, Tom fields a question about the invention of the bodyboard. Good question. Why is a boogie board basically 42 and a half inches long? The foam, the raw material comes at nine feet. And it took me, swear to God, it took me a month and a half with stacks of nine-foot-long extra foam in my garage to decide, shall I make this first one four and a half feet long, or should I make it, make, make it three feet long? Then I could get three per plank. <laughs> so I came up with, well, let's start big, and then I can always cut it down. I went for a four-and-a-half-foot-long board. It was a little too long. I got down around four feet and was making dozens and then maybe a couple of hundred but we were one day down at the post office, and I asked, uh, I looked at their length and girth measurements, and it turns out that if I make the board, and it was UPS, I guess, if I make the board 42 and a half inches long, then I could get four of them in a package instead of three. <laughs> Consequently, the basic length for a boogie board is 42 and a half inches. And you'll have a guy like Mike Stewart, who's six foot two, uses one. And you'll have a, 
a, a smaller guy like uh, Ben Severson was 5'7", he would swear by 42 and a half inches. <laughs> Actually, hey Tom, one more, more serious question. The rails on a boogie board are kind of ass backwards, but I know you worked on it for a reason to get that. Well, so. my first board, believe it or not, my first ride was in a, on a surfboard that was laying in my path as I was walking south from Main Beach, crossing Oak Street, and it was a hot curl board owned by none other than Dick Metz, your founder here. It was a redwood, balsa redwood, balsa redwood, that kind of layout, and the rails were curved up as hot curls, as, as there's many examples here where they're curved in the back. And uh, that was so that once you got the board going, as Paul knows, and you would drop your foot, you could drag it and get it started on a track, and the section would come up on the inside of that curvature and suck that board's tail to the wave. So when, when confronted with how to shape the first boogie board, I thought, well, I'll make it like a surfboard, 50-50, or maybe I'll turn it down a little bit. But I had experimented before that and had failures uh, riding without a skag, and you're, you're trying to go, you've got your skag out, and you're trying to go this way, and you bank the board, and it goes this way. And that's the physics of things, or, you know, or the other way. So I thought, well, why not make it like the hot curl board was? And in fact, let's just make it like a boat with sides that are at about a 45 degree angle. And maybe I'll be able to get some suction on that inside rail that would enable me to zip along across the shallow reefs. And sure as hell, that worked. It was amazing. And I could surf. My first wave, I didn't really know. First couple of waves, I didn't really know how to ride it. I was going to try and steer it flat. Then I got the idea of banking it, and the thing would zip along. And once it got going, it would hold a suction to that to that rail. I could keep my legs out of the water and just cruise. Other guys are leaving the beach because it got so shallow. And uh, Thank you. For the, too shallow for the reefs. And uh, this thing would surf in an inch of water. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, 
totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The uh, my mentors uh, were Bob Simmons and uh, who I would surf with, and Matt Kivlin and Joe Quigg. And especially Matt Kivlin and Joe Quigg, who went with Tom Zahn to Hawaii and picked up on, on what some of your Paul's elders were doing over there, Rabbit Kakai and the way they were surfing, and Tom Blake and the first fin. They brought that back. They brought nose riding back. And uh, Kivlin and uh, Quigg would make boards during their spare time in a little Quonset hut they had up uh, above uh, Malibu, near, near Malibu, and then they'd go down to Malibu and surf the boards. They'd have their shaping equipment and uh, viners and so forth. Go down, go down and surf the boards, ride them, bring them in, tweak them, take them out the next day, ride them. And there was very few people on the beach that were lobsters. This was the life. And then along came that uh, Gidget movie and popularization and the foam and our dollar sign started spinning and we all started making all the boards we could because we had not learned what Einstein taught. Einstein taught, if there's something that you really like to do, don't go in business doing that. Do that as your hobby. Get yourself a regular job. <laughs> now the rest of us, as Mickey Mignot says, we're all whores. <laughs> we find out what we really like to do, and then we get paid doing that. Yeah. You know, and I, I have pursued that course, and it's, it's a difficult course, because maybe you're making this thing out of the love of it, but you have to, you have to pander to the customer, or you have to, you have to uh, change it around, you have to prostitute it so it's what he wants. Now the problem that a surfboard maker has is that uh, he, he ends up having to allow the tail to wag the dog. You know what you want. You know how the board should be shaped. You know what this guy looks like and where he surfs and what would be good for him. And he comes in and with his developing concept is asking you to make the board with your brand on it, but with some some of his variations on it, and he wants more stickers, and he wants a blue panel and a red panel. And uh, it's, a, it's a drag to have taken the wrong step and gotten into trying to make a living doing what you like to do. <laughs> now I've learned more recently that I have all these different parts of me, but the biggest part is about the art of the thing. And the art is not just about the designs and the prettiness of it and the shapes and the aesthetics. In fact, I believe that if you have to use craftsmanship, sorry, sorry Carl, <laughs> but if you have to apply craftsmanship <laughs> to, to, to sell your product, you, you, uh, you're not much of a design, you're not much of a creator. My, my hero 
<laughs> is uh, you guys have seen uh, Drew Campion made that tabletop book with a cover, and this is native guy, and he's backside in some languid, beautiful, clear water, and he's blazing backside across this little three, four foot wave on a piece of wood. He's just got this, you know that, you know yeah, that picture? Yeah. He's just got this piece of wood going across. And if you guys, if you designers, I looked the other day at one of my best designs and the track it was making at Malibu, and then I looked at this guy on this <laughs> piece of wood. <laughs> and there was less weight coming off of this thing than his mine. Then there's those two guys, or three guys that came down with the gondolas and the the bicycles and that block of square foam is maybe one of you guys is one of those guys I don't know huh the guy at the end you're my hero man I can't even see you come here god oh you're the guy that was riding that block of foam oh my what the hell's your voice oh god that was um, so what a what a wipe I just wipes we're all there with it calipers and sanding and polishing bullshit man this guy this guy's just got some bamboo and some house paint or something some refrigerator packing you know now here's the other part of it here's a you know as you get older and you you're not out there in the, in the salt water and doing all that stuff of course you realize that you're mostly salt water that you came from the sea that this land and this governing of the land by the cities and states and nations is foreign to you because you're water, because you're fluid, because you're motion. Even above being water and space, you're just, your concept and motion. When you shut your eyes, you're in the real world. And we open our eyes and we get down here in the world of pots and pans and sandpaper and uh, we end up partly doing what we want to do and the rest of the time we're thinking about text seasons coming up. And where are my papers? And should I keep the receipt for, for this hamburger that I'm having with Carl? Because it's a business meeting. I mean, we're way, we're way off from being the spiritual entities that we are, right? Now, the other thing is that we were in the water, now, now we're out here, and then the water, the salt water is flowing through us. And it flows around the curves and shapes that we are. And it doesn't does it does or does not flow according to our thought processes and the the way we shape ourselves. And so we're learning as a species from these things that we do and make. We're also learning about how our bodies will be shaped in the future and that kind of stuff. And we're also at a change of planetary thinking where we're realizing that we are a tiny little rock at the edge of a, heated by a third-rate planet at the edge of a, a distant galaxy, and that there are other beings out there. I don't know if anybody in here believes the world is flat or believes that we are the only, the only sentient beings in the universe, and if not that, that we are the smartest ones. And so I've been looking for a long time and now can really see into the flying saucers and those kinds of crafts. And they, on this planet, began as early as 1922 with uh, patents by a guy, that uh, Henry Kawanda, who 
built the first jet airplane three years after the Wright brothers in 1910 and has patented and designed all kinds of things in Europe. So we're on the edge of space and space flight and the surfers, you surfers, we are at the, at the, are the beginning of real space beings and people that live off the planet, that live out there and depend on systems that can operate outside of the atmosphere. So we're at a very exciting time and surfing is right in the center of it. Next person. <laughs> Tom's good friend Carl Ekstrom played an important role in surf culture and design since the early 50s. I recorded this conversation at his home in December of 2013. But uh, I grew up right up, right up the street from Wind and Sea, and my brothers were both surfing when I was a little kid. So, uh, you know, the, uh, my brother Woody was, uh, Woody actually was a real good plank rider. Mm. And I just, I grew up, you know, in the group, you know, that I used to hang out at Wind and Sea when I was a little kid, go down there. And, there's a you know a lot going on in the, the parking lot right there, and uh, that was kind of my home. What know? decade was that? Uh, that was uh, well, that was I was born in '41. Okay. But uh, and uh, I I started surfing in '52. Okay. Because I never I couldn't swim because I where are you gonna learn how to swim? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, I almost drowned a couple of times. But I I learned when I learned how to swim. That's when I started surfing. So it was prior to polyurethane foam, obviously. Yeah, all everything wood. was wood, cool. you know, and so balsa. And so I grew up with um, people like Alan Nelson and, and Pat Kern and those guys. Mm -hmm. yeah, Pat's, you know, older than I am. Sure. But, uh, you know, uh, we had a real good group there. There was uh, Peter Parkin was, you know, the hot, one of the real hot surfers there. Yeah. At Wind and Sea. And actually, Peter Parkin's a guy that... That built the first skateboard. Oh, really? Yes. The first skateboard. He was a real good surfer. He lived right up the street from Wind and Sea, and all the wines and stuff. There was a kind of a garage in the back, with dirt floors and stuff. And they shaped boards back there and glass boards and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, in in '47 was uh, was the year. And uh, and and they just they were just flat landing it with skateboards. They'd buy the the um, the trucks, which were just skates, that they were they would uh, you, they had you could put them onto shoes. Okay. You could dial the kid like horns would come in and grab the shoe. Oh right. And that's right, where right. we made. And then I I got into skateboarding probably in early fifties. Okay. 50, probably probably forty nine fifty. Okay. Because I lived right up the street from Peter Parkin. Mm hmm. And uh, and uh, but that's where it came from. And I don't, I don't think anybody has gone be, back beyond that. It was kind of an evolution of surfing and roller skating, kind of. It was surfing when there was no surf. You're right. Yeah. With the roller skate. Yeah. Kind and of. it got into the hills and the turning and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. He used to modify the, you know, the, you know, the rubbers in them and all that stuff to make them more turny. Yeah. And then it started the, the big, the big hill stuff, you know, where you yeah. get going really, really fast. Yeah. And back then it was all steel wheels, and sure. use uh, so uh, you had to always look for smooth cement. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so it's usually on usually on sidewalks. Um, and then we took it. Uh, I worked with uh, Bobby Burns came down from Palos Verdes, mm -hmm. 
And uh, he took it, uh, we went up and he took it up to Palos Verdes. Yeah, a lot of John, Where John, John Van Hammersfeld yeah. and uh, Phil Becker okay. and the Eatons and all those guys. And so that's where it made the jump and then from there. Sure. But, uh, and we can, I can, <laughs> I know exactly where the wheels hit, hit the sidewalk. Really? The house is no longer there, but the driveway is, and that's how you got to the sidewalk. I'm sure that's that's where where, they hit. where skateboarding began. Yep, amazing. And it's really, I don't think anybody else is. I mean, I can. In fact, I have a lot of other people that can verify that. Sure. You know that are from that from Peter's generation. Yeah. Is yeah. he is he credited with? Well, they did. They, he's very—he's kind of an eccentric guy, and he doesn't like the press and all that kind of sure. stuff. He's on the East Coast right now. Okay. And uh, Dale Smith got a whole uh, talk to him. Okay. And uh, and who is doing the history on skateboarding and all that yeah. stuff? But there's a lot of stories going around and stuff. But yeah, this is what actually happened. Interesting. And I, and I can verify it through other people. You know, it's not just me. Yeah. But I think it'd be kind of interesting to put that little bronze thing totally. in the sidewalk you know not so that skateboarder would die when he hit it you know? yeah 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 <laughs> but uh but it was, i think it's it's really a, an interesting story because skating is just so huge oh it's now, i mean it's just huge. everywhere in the world yeah you know and but a lot of people are not inter that interested in history of anything that's a good point yeah so um i don't know i just i think it's I think that a lot of people would be interested. I would think so. Yeah, and uh, and um, you know, I and I, I worked with uh, Tony Hawk. You know, he he was one of our riders on the wave machine. Oh, he went right. To, yeah, right. He traveled with us, and you know, and he uh, went to Norway and right. So I mean, it's I was around people like that. Yeah, that were really bright, and uh, you know, were doing you know hands-on mm -hmm. neat things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just, uh, I worked with uh, Bobby Patterson, and he was just an incredible glasser. Yeah. And so I got a job, in 58, I got a job, you know, with um, uh, with uh, Valzi. Uh, Nelson was working where, Kern was working where, Yader was working there. Yeah. And so I was I was a glasser with Bobby Patterson for, uh -huh. for Valzi. And so, you know, you know, just being around these guys, Yader was a real hero of mine, just the was way it? he... You know, his, the way he did things, you know, he always looked like he was just in, at a relaxed pace. Yeah. You know, surfing at lunch and kind of, you know, it looked like a really, it didn't look like there was much uh, anxiety involved. Yeah. You know, it looked like he just kind of had things under control and his product was beautiful and and he had these, you know, he just had different ways of doing things. Yeah. You know? And so I was really heavily influenced by uh, in the late 60s, Carl was mainly surfing a spot called Wind and Sea in San Diego. It's a wave that has steep, hollow sections over a shallow reef, but then immediately drops off into these deeper water sections where the wave is flat and slow. And his board was good at making those steep sections and projecting a lot of speed, but then he'd find himself out in the flats and not able to adjust back into the pocket of the wave. So he began tinkering with asymmetrical design solutions that were specific to his surfing backside at that particular wave, but allowed him to better accommodate and adjust his speed in those situations. I rode wind and sea. Okay. And I, I liked boards that were really fast down the line. Okay. But I didn't want the board to track. 
explain just keep tracking. Going, track, keep going in the same direction. Okay. So I, I put another rail on the other side and did something with the fins to make, well, then I was actually doing, you know, we were doing um, just single fins. But, but, it, but through the, the plan shape of the board, I made it a much shorter board on, on the back, on the heel side. Okay. And uh, a lot more curve, a lot more kick in the tail. So the board had a real tendency to do that backside turn and get back onto the drive rail that's down the line. Because usually, you know, a surfer that's a regular foot likes to go right. He likes to face the way. Sure. And the other way around for a guy that's a goofy foot. So um, that's what really worked for me because riding wind and sea, you could outrun the wave and then, you know, yeah. you don't want to do that. Well, so. I'm curious um, about, like, I could see the um, desire to not want the board to track. Like, it, what, what year was this? Early 70s? Uh, that would have been, yeah, that would be uh, 65. Okay. 65 is when I did the first one. Okay. So the boards at that time, I think, were designed to do what you're saying, where it's just kind of like get it down the line as fast as possible, not a lot of maneuverability. Yeah, exactly. And from... I like maneuverability. Yeah. But I think that the next um, logical step in evolution would be maybe shortening that board, you know, to get more maneuverability out of it. Did you experiment with... Uh, sym symmetrical solutions along the way that maybe were just shorter or yeah. thin setups or things like that. Yeah, you know, we, we were, I was just wanted to get the boards to work. Yeah. I remember I did a, a fin. I, I was riding one board, the board kept spinning out, and I put a little extra fin on there, a little lateral fin that would hold the tail in, and it worked. It mm. held the tail in, it didn't spin the way, spin out the way it it did before that fin was on there. Yeah. But I, I was just, I just want the, the board to have the natu a natural tendency to do what I want it to do. Yeah. Just think it and it does it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And so that's what, for me, that's what asymmetry is all about. Um, and I got a patent back in, uh, in 67. I, had, okay. I got a patent on it and it ran out, it ran out 84. Okay. So uh, I just, I did it because I just, I, you know, I kind of, People are taking things and running off with them. <laughs> you know, if I didn't do that, no one would know that I had anything to do with it. Sure. <laughs> because I was just a small manufacturer. Sure. In fact, I went to Hobie to uh, to uh, try to sell the concept to him, but he was he was not interested. He, he was just doing the Hobie 14 right at okay. the beginning, and then he turned on the the, the sailboard also okay. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it was uh, so. Here's more from Carl at the opening exhibit at Shack. Uh, it's really funny. I, Pat Kern called me up and he said, uh, he says, you know, I've been making asymmetrical boards before you have because all of the boards back then were asymmetrical. And then he called me up again and he said, um, he said, what was your real reason for coming up with asymmetry, you know, and I and uh, I knew what he wanted to hear. You know, <laughs> I said, "Well, they're easier to make," and he said, "I knew it." And he said he wouldn't let me say one more thing. That was all he wanted to hear <laughs> because he's so much into symmetry. You know that if a board was, you know, an eighth of an inch off, you know, he'd want to cut the board in half. 
<laughs> really, I mean, because the stringer would come out in different places, he wouldn't just go over and change that stringer a little bit to make it look right. You know, he was just really into it. So, and I, you know, I respect that too. I mean, you have to. But um, you see a lot of this stuff, you know, the old Ferraris and things like that were just completely asymmetrical. But it's just like the face, you know, you look at it and you get used to looking at it and you don't, it looks like it's not asymmetrical, it looks right. You know, they learn how to, you know, change the, where the lights are and all that kind of stuff and, and fix it, you know. And, uh, and they, they're not really concentrating. These are all hand-built things, you know. And if you spend all your life trying to make things perfectly symmetrical, it's going to take a lot more time and uh, you're gonna, it's an uphill thing. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult. So I, I respect the symmetry also. Carl was also partially responsible for helping create the Flowrider Wave Machine, which not only was a feat in and of itself, but it really allowed him to further examine and explore the principles of hydrodynamics and the way that boards, surfboards, move through water. So then I got into doing uh, wave machines uh, back in 88 and uh, worked with Flowrider and uh, did that for 12 years and got to really refine the asymmetry. You know, you could actually walk up to the rider, and these are all top riders, you know, snowboarders, skateboarders, surfers, you know, they're, they're all the top people. And you could just basically walk up to the machine and just talk to these guys while they're riding to find out whether the board's working or not. And so I, I got all my feed, you know, back from those guys, and, uh, and it just... And Terry Hawkinson and Kelly Slater and all these guys. I mean, they're people to listen to. I mean, they, they know. And so, but it was kind of neutral ground. So all, you know, no one really had, um, you know, it was a new experience for everybody. You know, snowboarders, skateboarders, surfers. It was a whole new experience. So they, they were kind of coming together on kind of a neutral, neutral tur turf, you know, to, you know. And so it was really a, a good area to develop <coughs> new designs. And uh, it was, uh, that, that's when I started doing a lot of side cut and, uh, you know, putting a, a, a waist, you know, a side cut on a board like a snowboard. Because uh, like our big Norway wave uh, was, um, it was uh, a little bit, had a little more slope to it and it was hard for the surfers to come out of the tube. On, on, the, on that, so by putting side cut, the board had a lot less resistance. And uh, the first ones I sent over there, I did for uh, Terry Hawkinson, and they looked like bananas. They looked like they're funny looking things, you know? And I thought, oh, these guys are gonna give me so much trouble. But then he goes out there and wins the contest. <laughs> and then the next year I go back and say, well, where are all the, the ones with the side cut? And I thought, oh, I, didn't, I thought you didn't like him. No, they, they, as soon as they saw him do what he could do, then they all wanted him. So it's, um, it was really a good, a good uh, test ground for a lot of things. You know, you could, uh, it was, uh, the, the flow was consistent, and you could get in and just see what other shapes did, you know. And it was a real learning experience. What about surfers, like uh, A-list surfers? You mentioned A-list snowboarder responding well to the Flowrider yeah. board. What about like Kelly Slater? Obviously, I saw that photo. 
Well, I, the one that he was riding was asymmetrical that I did for him. Right. And, and what, uh, what's his feedback been? Well, he put the plan shape on it because we broke the tail off. I'll show you the board. It's out, I have it. Out oh, there. you do? Yeah. Okay. He broke the tail off, and uh, they were filming in the summer, too. Right. So, and we didn't know what was going to work because it was early, you know, weight machine. Uh-huh. And it was, uh, we were over in Texas. And um, so anyway, uh, at night, we, I was with Terry Hawkinson and, and Kelly, and we went into the hotel, and, they did, and he put the lines on there that he thought would work, you know. And the board ended up being only like 37, 39 inches long. Okay. You know, because the tail had been broken off. It right. It used to be about four feet. Sure. And they had carbon in it and stuff. And it was EVA, uh, polypropylene foam. And so anyway, um, he, he, he wrote it and he started doing these helicopter things where he would do one helicopter, two helicopters, then he'd drop down the face. And, and then, he, and then he, he would turn the board backwards you know, so the nose was a tail, and then there was kick in the nose, so the quanta effect would pull the board back into the tube, and then you turn around and come out. Really? Yeah. It was. I had the footage. I have the footage. Of the yeah. Board. You said they were filming that for Endless Summer too. Yeah. Yeah. They never. Used no, they the just footage. show. Yeah, they just showed um, Mori getting hurt on it. Right. Which he right, did. Right. He screwed up his back. Oh, did back, he? Back. Yeah, he was screwed up for about five years. Oh my gosh. Has, has Kelly ridden any of? Um, any sur- asymmetrical surfboards that yeah. you know of outside yeah. of the machine? Yeah. And he's, uh, was a couple of years ago, he was doing some experimenting with a- asymmetry. Uh huh. I didn't see the boards, but that's what I was told. Who, who shaped the boards? He was, he's shaping, he's doing some stuff. He he's actually getting in and playing with it. That's what I've heard. Okay. You know, I don't, I haven't talked to him in years. Yeah. But, uh, he was really great to work with, you know, back then. I was with him in Germany and stuff like that, but I got out of the business in 2000, way right. business right, 2000. Right. I did a lot of experimenting down at the Scripps Institute in the hydraulics lab when we were doing, you know, the uh, flow rider. You know, I came up with all the shapes uh, for the machines themselves. And uh, I uh, developed these little, um, took a, a garden hose and made them plant them up and then I had a gate that came down. I could adjust, I could, and then a ball valve, and I could adjust the velocity with the ball valve, and I could, uh, I could lift the gate to get the water to the depth I wanted it to be. So, um, and, uh, and then we worked with standpipes, you know, where I know what the, where the head pressure was at the nozzle, you know, from the standpipe. So I learned a lot just working down there on that stuff, and we're doing, you know, they had the flow equipment stuff down there, and so we learned a lot just by doing that. And there, I have a little machine over there in the corner, and I, I'm working, you know, off of Tom's, you know, uh, air lubrication. And so I'm putting different, uh, different little uh, kicks, little um, riblets in there to see and then adding air and doing things to see if I can get that water to separate so that the board, uh, when the board's ridden like a big wave board, so that we can reduce the wetted area and so, uh, you know, to give you more control and more speed. So uh, I have done quite a bit, you know, just working with, and it was just a garden hose <laughs> and a plenum. And then uh, it's just crazy what you can come up with, but it's really fun to test 
Tom's stuff, you know, on this, you know, simple little machine. But, uh, cool. and um, I've worked with uh, Richard Kenvin quite a bit. Uh, you know, he's kind of our leader, you know, and he's, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's a guy that comes up with the concepts, and then we try to, to make, you know, the, whatever it is to work incorporating his concept. And uh, so he comes up with a lot of the ideas for what we're going to do. And then, but the only problem with Kevin, I mean, Richard, is because he's such a good writer that everybody says, well, he can write anything. You know, but then at the same time, you want to do something that he would prefer to write. You know, so that would make a big difference. But um, so that's, that's what you run into out there, you know, from people that think, well, why have Richard? This guy's a phenomenal writer, and he gives us back the information we need to go forward, forward with our designs. And so right now I'm working on uh, doing rail bites that go all the way up uh, so that the rails hold better. And so that's what, I'm, that's what we're going to be working on next. And, then, and of course, Ryan, you know, is you know, a phenomenal test pilot too because he's just written so much, so many different designs that he can, he just has really dialed it in. And it's just, there's so much good information that comes out of these guys, it's just incredible. So we, we work together, it goes back and forth. And we work, you know, their, their concepts and he works with my concept and we go back and forth with this stuff. And that's the way it should be. You know, it's, uh, it's just a fun way to work. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot better than just, you know, being alone, you know, doing things, everything just separated from everybody else. Because that kind of puts you on an island. And it's, it's not as much fun. It's just more fun to work with people that are really talented. And we got them. Like Billy Bryan, the, the skimboarder. You know, he, he rides these things that are just like, you know, pumpkin seeds. And he rides the hell out of them. You know, I mean, it's just incredible. And I put him on, uh, you know, board with side cuts, and it, to him it felt like, um, you know, riding a two by four. You know, because he didn't have that curve. So, um, but you, what you can do is you can add, you know, uh, you know, kick the tail out and stuff to make that a little more draggy to give you your turning. It's really hard to, uh, to build flex in, you know, because of the weight of the rider and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty, it's difficult. And so we're working pretty rigid. And, uh, but side cut was really good for, for um, there's just not as much resistance. In fact, Ryan, you know, has been riding a board with side cut in, right in front of the fin and getting the fin real close to the rail when he comes out of the turn there's not much resistance because the fin is always kind of fighting the rail and there's just not much fight going on there and he goes really fast. So I mean there's there's so much you can do with the plan shape to to make things you know go faster and uh, my, my whole goal was always to, to come up with designs uh, where the surfboards had a natural tendency to do what you wanted them to do all you had to do was think about it and it was done, you know. And uh, a lot of the, you know, with fish and things like that, the fish is a great design, but it doesn't want to go from rail to rail very well. 
And, but people, they figure out ways of doing it, and you know, they get you know, really fantastic at doing it. But I think the board should just have a natural tendency to do what you want it to do. You shouldn't have to be fighting. And um, so it all has to do with what, you know, you know, like, you know, Don was saying, you know, just, uh, you know, what it is that the, the uh, rider wants to achieve, you know, how he wants to ride. It's real personal. So, I mean, there's so many ways, so many ways, so many directions you can go in. The fascinating thing is that these materials are sold all over the world. And there's still room for new designs, which is amazing. I mean, there's, what, 50,000 surfers in Italy? I mean, I mean, it's just amazing that, you know, there's still room for, for new designs. But, but it all has, it comes down to what, it, you know, what people want to do in a wave. I was interested to learn that Carl actually hasn't surfed in 25 years, and it made me curious if that inhibited his design process. Uh, actually, I surf these things in my mind. Hmm. I mean, I look at them, and some of, the, some of these things are going, oh, you know, I can actually feel hmm. how that would be, you know, shaping them. And I'm going, in some cases, I don't even want to make them scale to a scale where they can be written because it's kind of more interesting to not know exactly how this thing is going to work. Interesting. You know, I mean, it's... it's Conceptual. The conceptual stuff is... It's, uh, it's just like, like poetry, whatever, you know, it's the, the gray areas. Yeah. That, you know, that keep your interest. Yeah, or that you leave up to interpretation. Exactly. Donald Brink's design philosophy has been directly derived from much of Carl Ekstrom's. But this evening at the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center was the first time they actually met in person. Donald expands on these thoughts by talking about designing for a feeling. When it comes to surfboards, you um, providing an answer for a sensation that you're after. So surfing feels a certain way to everyone and that's what keeps you coming back for more. So it's good to, um, once you start to understand the hydrodynamic principles that are constantly at hand anytime you're gliding across a surface or pushing water against either side of one you've created, very simply put, you built a surfboard. Once you decide what, and, and start to understand what makes it go fast, slow, or in a certain way that you're trying to um, promote or to, um, defer, is that the right word? Um, it, gets, it gets fun because they become just building blocks for answering somebody's need. So I wish there were more facilities to be able to quantify results and so on and so forth, but you're all customers that need your needs met, so I always say your ability to describe what you're trying to do in the water is the most powerful base of reference to design a board. Most people don't even know what they're trying to do on a wave. And that's ridiculous because you can't design something for something that you don't know what it needs to be or look like or feel like. We surf with those guys every day at San Well, <laughs> and here's the thing is there's no preaching bad against that. But how about tonight looking around and go, 
wow, I don't understand how that works, but what am I trying to do? And you leave with, a, with an understanding of, well, I need to just kind of think about what I'm doing. I'm not just going through the motions. And then you get to a place of, what do I need to do that? Our job is to make something that does that. And, and the freedom in that was, for me, and I'm sure for everyone, it's if you're willing to be wrong and you act bravely, <laughs> if you're right, we move ahead. And John, you mentioned that, you know, you make a change to move forward. I love that. Never forget it. You have a concept, you instill a vision, and you create change. If it's bad change, you go back and you change until you get it right. Now your vision changes as you get old or you get interested in something else or you get bored. Don't get bored with riding waves. <laughs> it's a blessing, it's an honor to do so. If that's less of quantifying what we're doing, it's about a feeling that I think is as important. I'm gonna close out our episode with these thoughts about hydrodynamics from Mr. Tom Mori. I, I have a I have a closing comment for, for me, and that is um, if you have a chance to wash the dishes, take it. If you're at all interested in any of this stuff, get in there and wash the pots and pans and let the water flow over all the curves that are available. My God, there's all the pebble things, uh, how the water flows if there's bacon grease. If there's uh, little pieces of oatmeal stuck on there, that's all valuable data. That all has to do with how things will flow through your arts and your veins and arteries and how you will flow through life. Go wash the dishes for your wife. <laughs> it's amazing how this stuff comes out. I'm not thinking this stuff at all. Visit surfingheritage.org or just come to Surf Splendor Podcast and we will link to their website where you can become a member. And if you live locally, awesome. You can attend events like this and receive cool benefits, but you can also become a member from abroad and just support the museum and the effort from afar. I'd like to share a final thought on today's episode. Um, a lot of times when designing something, in fact, the vast majority, I think, of the time, designs generally don't work. There are far more failures than successes, but it changes something that leads to something that does work. The missteps are all part of the path. And the most important detail about the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center is that they keep a record of all of these changes. They are cataloging the successes and the missteps so that we can come and peek at the overview and ideally forge new paths. It is quite a resource. There's just one more very important final thought or maybe better yet, a philosophy about design that was brought to my attention by Carl Ekstrom. We were sitting in his living room watching surf footage of Chris Del Moro, Richard Kenvin, Ryan Birch writing some of Carl's designs. And um, this particular bit was recorded when we were watching that footage that I've discussed about Ryan Birch writing a four-foot, unglassed, finless chunk of styrofoam. It's just this square block, unshaped styrofoam. So here's what Carl had to say. 
no, I mean, I don't know what the market could be for something like that because I, mean, I can't imagine anybody surfing it as well as he is. Yeah, exactly. Or having as much fun even. But you know, these, this kid, you know, he it brings it within the realm of possibility. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like if you, if you never saw someone ride a unicycle, mm -hmm. you would think it couldn't be done. Sure. Then all of a sudden someone does it and you go, hey. And so the kids see that, and now there'll be a whole bunch of kids that'll be able to ride like him. You're really trying new, new stuff. That birch footage is on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. The main piano piece in today's show was composed by Philip Glass for Allen Ginsberg based on his poem, Wichita Vortex Sutra. And it was performed by Bronca Parlick. As always, thank you for listening. And until next week, shred on.